Hello and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel and these are the women who rule. everyone and welcome back to She Dynasty. Very excited. Today we have Annalisa Gooden here. She's the founder and CEO of a company called Catch and Release. Catch and Release is the leading end-to-end content licensing platform that allows brands and advertisers to license content from anywhere on the internet. Not only that, but you can also secure copyright and model releases, manage licenses, and indemnify content all in one place. Catch and Release works with companies like Twitter, Nike, DoorDash, Verizon, ESPN, and so many more. Hello, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm good. So, so excited to have you on She Dynasty today. You know, it's it's interesting. I, you know, I interview so many different um, women from different backgrounds, Um you know, you are somebody who um, I'm very excited to talk to just because um, you kind of live in the same world as me, you know, in this creative industry, even though what we do is a little different. But, um, you know, I, I interview people that sometimes are, you know, come from a law or finance background. And sometimes those conversations are harder for me, but I, I just have a feeling you and I are going to flow together. So I'm super excited. Always great to meet other members of the creative community, for sure. Awesome. Well, you know, one of the things um, that is obviously so impressive about what you've done um, is, you know, you've started this incredible company called Catch and Release and, you know, very quickly started to get traction and funding. And, um, you know, I don't know if people can, you know, can't can't see you how I can see you right now, but you're obviously very young in your career. And so you've been able to do something pretty extraordinary, very, very early on, which is so, so impressive. And again, one of the other things that I love about She Dynasty is that I speak to women of all ages and, you know, sometimes they're older than me. Sometimes they're my age, sometimes they're younger. And I just learned so much from, from everybody. So very excited for myself and everyone listening to learn a little bit from you today. So as you know, She Dynasty is um, about the four S's in your journey, about how you've gotten to where you are today so that people can you know, learn from you. But before we go into that, I'd like you to talk a little bit about catch and release and what it is you guys do. I tried to explain it the best I can, but it's always different when it's, you know, it's kind of um, told from the founder's voice and perspective. So give us a little bit of uh, background on catch, catch and release and what it is you guys do. Great. Well, Catch and Release is solving a super interesting problem that impacts almost every uh, creative working today um, on both the ideation side of creatives, so professional creatives, people who um, make their career out of coming up with great ideas and communicating, helping clients communicate with the outside world, um, and creators, people who are on the other side of the camera, which these days is a pretty democratized side of the industry. Uh, when I first got started, you were film school and you you know, got budgets to rent big cameras and uh, make visions come true and sort of on the big screen. And now uh, it's all in our pocket with filters. And there's still a lot of, of people creating content on the whole spectrum from professional all the way to amateur, but it's become a definitely a democratized um, industry. So. We are building a product that's making the entire internet 
available for commercial use, licensable, you could say, for commercial use. So creating the first marketplace at the scale of the internet to allow professional creatives and storytellers to access the amazing repository, growing repository of amazing images, videos on the internet and, and being able to use those in a commercial um, capacity. So if, a, so if a creative person, and obviously this is a world I understand just because, you know, I own an advertising agency. So if, if somebody on my team, and I'm obviously very excited to, you know, share your company and your services with my team. Um, but if they, you know, they found a piece of content online, they would call you and show it to you. And then you guys do all the legwork and get us the pricing and the licensing and all the indemnification and all of the things that go with that. Yes, that's exactly right. And um, if you, you know, oftentimes you're not just looking for one thing, maybe your team found a thing that they really liked, but you want to see more like that. Um, we're building technology that's going to recommend other kinds of content, maybe more from that creator, more in that style, more in that aesthetic, more in that look and feel, whatever your story is, is needing. Um, we're going to, we're building the recommendation technology to help surface additional options. Um, in addition to having a place where creators can make themselves seen and known. So while we aren't limited to just going after creators that are interested in licensing, because a lot of the internet's filled with people who have never licensed anything before and have never participated in the commercial world, we reach out to them all the time saying, hey, just so you know, um, a, brand, a major brand that you recognize is interested in your shot. Would you like to go through this process with us? Um, there's also a lot of creators that have picked up on this opportunity and have said, hey, next time um, a brand is looking for something like this, this is the kind of stuff that I shoot. And so we want to make that as easily discoverable as possible. We're, we're not commissioning the creators to create. We're saying, here's the kind of, if you, if you, it's, it's when, when, um, when someone finds something that they like online, they sometimes want to see more from that creator. And so when like, okay, I love that, you know, that, that shot of your daughter in the park. Um, can I see more from that day? <laughs> can I see more from that hour that you were shooting or I really love this style. Can I see more of your stuff? Right. Um, so we want to create a relationship with creators where they can put a lot of that content that buyers can then browse, but we're not, we're not asking them to go out and do any additional work than they've already done. Okay. And so if I have a creative, I'm just going to make up an example, but if I have a, a creative that is looking for footage of something very specific, would they call you and say, I need footage of uh, women working out on Pelotons. Yeah. Well, the first thing we would do is give you access to the tool that you can search across the internet for women on Pelotons and see what's out there. So you'd actually start your journey on catch and release to see maybe you're even just in the strategy stage where you're saying, do we want to do a spot on women in Pelotons or men on Pelotons? Well, let's go see what's, what's out there already as a way to storyboard, as a way to Kind of pull ideas together. That's the that's the vision for the tool. Is that actually is its starting point for your strategy and ideation around creative. And then once you get through to like, okay, now we're going to build. We've kind of decided what we want to do. We're going to narrow down to a rip. We want to present to the client. You're still using content that Catch Release has has assembled for you. And then you can go into that pitch and say, here we we believe in focusing on women on Pelotons. Here's an example of a spot we've created for you. And if the client loves it, you could say, well stuff we could license or we could go out and, and shoot parts of it or whatever. So our goal really is to use the internet as the creative sandbox that it is across the whole stage of the ideation and creative process. Awesome. And is there a cost for searching or do you only get paid if there is some sort of a licensing deal done? 
right now we only get paid if there's a licensing deal done. Um, and we also, we do, we do charge for different stages of the clearance process. So when you want to license something, we'll do a clearance assessment where we check and see how much IP is in the shot, how risky is the shot going to be to indemnify, or, you know, are there any logos in there that are going to have to get scrubbed? We just do sort of a general first pass to make sure it's clean. And we do charge a small fee for that. And then, and then everything else is on the license. We have, we are exploring things. There are some um, brands and advertisers that have asked us if they can pay for access to some of our tools and we're considering a SaaS, a SaaS basis, but that we're not launching that yet. Got it. So this is something I need to introduce to my creative team. Like, yes, <laughs> because there's no SaaS. Component. <laughs> well, okay. So understood. So the difference between you guys and like a Getty images, because obviously if you find something on Getty, um, that's stock. So I read, you know, part of what you're doing is less stocky, obviously, because it's kind of more real world content, which is understood, which is, does, there is some of that obviously on Getty, but you guys are actually going to find things that are not like necessarily available to everybody out there. Is that correct? Yeah. In many cases, our, our, um, our creatives and storytellers are using content that's never been used in an ad before. And it's making its way into award-winning spots. We did a um, spot for... Applebee's that won a golden can. Like it, it's this is incredible stuff that like has been hidden from the commercial world. And the other thing I would say is it evolves. The internet is evolving. It's a different internet right now than it was when we first started this conversation. And so building a tool that can keep pace with the evolution of content on the web, which is really an evolution of culture, is super interesting. So where the stock library model is to say, all right, I'm going to go after a small amount of photographers who are going to upload all of their stuff here and give uh, our customers a sort of contained box to search within. We're saying the internet is that contained box and it actually isn't contained at all. It's constantly growing and it's constantly changing. Let's build the licensing technology that allows us to have our clients pick and choose whatever might be relevant and do the marketplace on the back end of that. So what, the way we really describe what Catch and Release's vision is, is to build the licensing layer of the internet. It's to bring licensing functionality internet-wide. Okay, sorry. So um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, obviously everyone has a, a, a phone in their pocket and camera and filters. Um, is, you know, is this problematic for film schools? Or is this, is that art going to go away in your, in your mind? I'm just curious what your, your kind of perception is on that. Not at all. Not at all. This is a new tool. In fact, I think about this in terms of the production community as well, because obviously this is now a new way to produce content, not necessarily going out and shooting it, but going out and finding it, curating it, licensing it, editing it. It's a new medium. And so this becomes a tool in the pocket of film schools, becomes a tool in the pocket of production companies, advertising agencies and brands. Yeah, I mean, like, there's always going to be a need to shoot stuff, but to your point, it just adds to it. Um, I'm working on a commercial right now where the majority of it shot, but there was a few shots that we wanted kind of up front um, that we wanted to add in. And we are actually in the moment looking for footage. So we're going to have to connect after this about something before we have to go shoot it. We're trying to see if there's another way to yeah. handle it. And the other thing to think about too, that, that I think our, our customers think about is how do I do more with the budget that I have. So budgets aren't getting massively larger. There are a lot of ways we're looking for more efficient ways to to spend that money. And so it may be that, you know, a lot of our customers are looking at, okay, well, what must I shoot, right? If I'm going to do, if I'm for releasing a new product, 
and I need product photography, obviously we're going to have to shoot something that's not going to exist on the internet yet. It hasn't been released, but maybe there's two spots that can come out of the price of one because we're able to ex expand our resources. So it's really about, it's really about creative expansion. It's about how else can we, how else can we bring this idea to life? The idea is always at the center. Yeah. Creative brief is the North star always. The last thing we ever want to do is compromise a creative brief. Every, everybody's ambition is to launch something into the world, a story into the world or a piece of creative that mirrors the intent of what that idea was. That's the goal always. And oftentimes with stock, it's, it's a compromise. It's like, well, I guess because we don't have the budget, we have to. And now it's, now it's not a compromise. It's this really beautiful middle path that's never been paved, which is, well, we're not, it doesn't, this creative content on the web is unlimited. There's so much you can do. There's so many different kinds of stories you can tell. There's no stockiness there. It's all open, it's all green fields. Um, so it's just a matter of deciding what does the idea need and how do we, how do we make it, how do we make it happen? Oh, I'm so excited to get my team on board with this. Like, I don't know why we're not using this yet. So very excited. This is going to come in very, very handy. We're still fairly new and a lot of, it's not second nature. It's the third path that hasn't been paved yet. There's, that's a lot of people don't think about. We're not, it, it, this is going to become part of a se second nature to a production process. Understand. Our producers know they've got their call sheets. They understand exactly how to like line up the resources yeah. that they need for for a production. When I first started, there was no role for video researcher in. There were art buyers who were focused on photography and knowing what photographers to go out and and hire, but no one that was really like scouring the web for content was not a capability that existed in the sort of agency team structure. I'm assuming you guys have technology that helps do that. You're not like just Google searching things, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, search is a huge part of what we offer and and not just our own tech, but we also have curators. Um, I built this company on the, on the back of a curation service that I built and provided. And we still have those curators today that are doing an amazing job learning what customers are looking for and matching that with keywords and our technology is learning from Actually. Is your primary customer brands or agencies or both? Both. Okay. Yeah, we're agnostic. Production companies too. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, amazing. I all I'm so inspired by what you're doing, just because obviously it affects me and my company in such a big way, but also just such a brilliant idea. Just so great. Congratulations. Thank you, Thank you so much. All right. Well, um, with that, um, I do want to start, um, you know, just learn a little bit about your background, some of the sparks in your childhood. So tell us um, a little bit about where you're from and, um, you know, what, what were some of the things that excited you as a child um, when you were younger, just things that when you looked at the world and what you wanted to be when you grew up, what was that? That's a very thoughtful question. Um, I have always been a creative person. I've always been a very visual person. My mom used to say that when I was a baby, I was just like, distracted by people's nail polish colors, like always thinking about um, how things looked. Um, as I got older, I started to nurture a more analytical side. Um, so I became kind of really interested in not just how something looks or how, but also how something feels and what, and asking kind of why does it feel that way? And if I change it like this, does it feel differently? So I was always kind of asking lots of why questions in the creative field. Um, as a young kid, I spent a lot of time in the mountains, um, backpacking, you know, very little sort of resources, 
you know, no plumbing, no traditional refrigeration and kind of going on wild adventures, which I really liked. And I think that led to uh, an acceptance or an embracing of the unknown that I certainly rely on today. Carving a new, paving a new path is not filled with answers. It's filled with lots and lots of questions, but you still got to keep going. <laughs> you got to make it through the night. <laughs> so you have to be very resourceful. So a lot of the, a lot of my early childhood was spent outside. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, but we, we are very close to the Sierra Nevada mountains and, um, and my family spent a lot of time up there. When you, um, when you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to do when you grew up? When I was a kid, my first, my earliest recollection um, was that I wanted to have a hair salon in New York huh? with an art gallery above it. That was my vision. Very specific. I like it. And I think, um, I think, you know, as, a, as I got, I, I became very interested in writing um, in, in high school. I, I played a little bit with drama. I played piano. Um, I wrote. So I tried out a lot of different creative mediums um, as a kid. My mom is a, is a photographer, an amazing photographer, and my dad is a neurologist. So the other thing that I think I learned a lot from my parents about was this really interesting tension between this kind of hovering tension between the creative and the, and the intellectual. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a really great, um, th- those are two great mentors to have for sure. Very fantastic. I love that because it kind of makes you use all sides of your brain, right? That's exactly right. And I, and I thought as an artist, I was always thinking about not just what did I want to create, but how was I going to connect with an audience? How was I going to, how did what I, how was what I do doing mattering? How did it matter? How would it matter to someone who was looking at it? And I think that's what, that's what initially had enabled me to fall in love with the advertising industry it was like, that was the whole that was the whole gig. And it was, can you do it in 30 seconds? And can you do it on a shoestring budget? And can you do it with all these people running around? It was just such a cool, energetic field and interesting problem to solve. So I understand that at the age of 11, you hit a pretty significant snag, especially for a child of that age. Um, You lost your house in a fire. Tell us what happened there and how that impacted you. Yeah, um, it was... In 1991, it was the Oakland Hills fire. So for anybody living in California, you're accustomed now to almost an annual fire somewhere in the state. Um, so when I was 11, it impacted us and about 2,700 other, other homes. And, you know, it's one of those things that I can't imagine life without that moment. Um, there was just so, I mean, it was hard, obviously, but there were so many amazing lessons that came out of that that I still that still guide me today, that it's hard not to be sort of um, grateful for it in a weird way. Did you guys have, Did you were you able to prep? Did you have time? Was it a last minute thing? Could you get stuff that was important? We did not get to prep much. We, but thankfully we didn't have to like emergency evacuate. We had already left the house that morning for a family reunion, just a few miles away. Um, and by the time we got to the reunion, the sky was orange and we turned the news on and everything was burning. Um, so in a way, we didn't have to deal with the trauma of evacuating, which was, you know, I talked to some families after that fact that, you know, that was really hard um, and really scary. I have two younger siblings. Um, so we were between the ages of eight and 11, the three of us. So, you know, that would have been really scary for us. Um, but the downside to to that also is that we didn't really get closure. It was you didn't really we didn't really get to say goodbye to anything. Not that we would have if we had had to run out and evacuate, but 
maybe a little bit more than just showing up a couple of weeks later to, you know, a completely empty lot um, was a, was a pretty jarring experience. Yeah. You know, I, I think things have changed. I remember back in the day when I was younger, if your house would burn, you'd grab your photo albums and, you know, things that are memories, like that's not a thing anymore. So I'm actually really curious to ask you if you, if you did have a warning and you did have to grab some things, what, what would you have grabbed? Well, you want to hear something really eerie. So that morning before we left for the family reunion, we're pulling out of the garage and one of us, me or my brother and my sister said, can you guys stop the car? My parents were like, oh, we're running late. Like, what do you want? Like, can we just go grab one thing? Oh, wow. And each of us ran into the house and we grabbed one thing. Oh, wow. That's- my brother grabbed a skateboard, I think. I think my sister grabbed a stuffy. And I think I grabbed a necklace, a piece of jewelry. And I was thinking about grabbing because my mom had uh, and her engagement ring was an old family heirloom that she usually kept in the safe deposit box. That's also another old school reference. Um, and she'd pulled it out the night before because they'd gone to some party. And I thought about it when I went in. I was like, I think I'm going to take my mom's engagement ring and show it off to my cousins and be the cool, like, person with this awesome diamond ring. And I chickened out. Wish I had. Wow. I have a friend who lost a home in the Malibu fire, and we helped support her through that. Um, you know, I don't think people realize, you know, or maybe they do just a tremendous sense of loss, you know, to come back to the thing that makes you feel the most whole, the most safe, just being leveled into a lot. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about the impact that's had on your life overall. I think immediately it gave me a ton of perspective. Like, I was able to look around and say, well, the really important things are here. Like my family is safe. Right. You know, I'm still going to the same school I was going to. Um, My friends are the same friends. Like the people in my life didn't change. And that, that really meant a lot to the consistency, the continuity of my, my like, you know, middle school sort of young adult growth. Um, so I think that's that was the takeaway initially. It was like, okay, that was hard, but um, the the important things are still here, and I, I think that that has stayed with me forever. Is is that I'm very good at letting things go, and I think that can be a real asset. Sometimes it can be a challenge too, but it can be also healthy. I can imagine. All right, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, so you, I understand you spent quite a bit of time in the art world before um, founding your company and you attended Lorenzo de Medici Art Institute in Florence and got your master's of arts from California College of the Arts. Um, and you even wrote your thesis on the representation of loss in art and memorials, specifically focusing on Holocaust memorials. Um, did you ever envision yourself being an artist when you were young, being that so much of your focus was there for a minute? Definitely. Yes. That's when I, when I graduated from high school, I went to art school with the intention of pursuing a career in the arts. I was always open to what that would look like though. I didn't necessarily have an image of myself in a studio selling paintings, getting represented by a gallery. I was always open to that, but also other avenues that used my, my creativity. Um, didn't really imagine myself in advertising. That's for sure true. I did not ever see myself in advertising. I, that, that I fell in love with once I was introduced to it. Um, but before that it was, it was, um, I imagined myself as an artist, an art writer, a curator. I was 
I did do all of those things between college and grad school. Um, I was always interested in just being a part of the, there's, you know, there's a couple of different facets to being an artist. One is a very personal, it's a very personal choice. I make work because I have to make work. Um, the other is the art world, the economy, the market around it. I make work because it has value to someone else to buy. Those two things aren't always the same. And so there are a lot of artists who are practicing artists that have no interest in being a part of the art world. And that's fine. Those are two different interests. Um, and there are some people who love being in the art world, but don't necessarily think about it as a personal or uh, a, a personal path. So, um, so yeah, I, I was kind of exploring that space um, and, and really following more the breadcrumbs of advisors and professors and peers that I was really interested in talking to and learning from. That's what guided me on my next like career path was, Ooh, that sounds cool. That sounds interesting. I'm curious about that. Oh, maybe there's a, I could freelance there or try this thing there. So uh, an important follow-up question. Do you still consider yourself an artist? Absolutely. I love it. I'm practicing. Yeah. I do residencies. I've done, I did two or three residencies during the pandemic um, with a network of artists all over the world. Um, yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like catch and release is an expression of your art form? You know, it is. Um, it absolutely is. Uh, but building a product and holding a standard for how we deliver something to a client is not only creative, but we're inventing. So it's creative because we're building it. And I think everyone who works at Catch and Release is gets to share in that feeling of building. Um, and that makes us all creative. Even if some people say, well, I'm not really an artist. Like, no, maybe not. Maybe you don't identify that way, but you are helping to build something out of nothing. And that's very exciting. And then the other side of it that I found a really great connection to is just learning about my own leadership style, my personal leadership, um, and being in a position where I get to try out different ways of leading people. Um, and that has been surprisingly fulfilling. I didn't come into it thinking I'm going to be a CEO and lead a large organization. In fact, I met someone recently who said, I really wanted to become a CEO. So I thought, well, I better start in sales because every CEO needs to really understand revenue or I must start in operations because every CEO needs to understand how efficiency works. And for me, it was, I never thought I'm going to be a CEO, but I just kept following the path and looking back on it, I now see that it's leadership. I mean, it's entrepreneurialism is leadership. You, you are creating something from nothing that requires a lot of courage, requires a lot of vision, but importantly, in good organizations and great organizations, it requires leaders that can bring people along through the journey because they can't always see exactly what you can see. And so it becomes the art of how to guide people. And that guidance is growth for them, which is super fulfilling for the leader because then you're, you're not just in the business of building a business, you're in the business of growing people to achieve something that they didn't know that they could achieve or that they very much would like to achieve. So that's been, that's been a really wonderful discovery. Very well put. So I want to dig in a little bit into um, kind of the, the spark of catch and release. You have this idea, where did it come from? And how do you take an idea or a thought and make it a reality? This is probably the part people care the most about, because I believe that so many people in this world have great ideas 
and nobody knows, not nobody, so many people don't know what to do with it. How do you make something that's a thought in your head? I, I can't even tell you how many people, probably because I'm in advertising, come to me and say, I have this idea for a brand. I have this idea for a company. And by the way, a lot of times they're amazing ideas, but they just die on the vine, right? Because nobody knows how to kind of move it forward. So there is an incredible, incredible skill set that I don't want to downplay where you have a spark of an idea and you somehow turn it into something tangible, whether it works out or not is a whole nother conversation, but literally being like, we're, we're going to make a company and we're going to do this. Tell us a little bit about that, that spark, that moment. Awesome question. And thank you for giving me some insight into what your, what your audience cares about. That's always, that's always great to know. There's two pieces to it. One, one relates a lot to how I got the idea. So how did the idea come to me? How did I decide this was the thing I wanted to do? Because that sometimes is the first stumbling block because maybe it's not really just one thing. Maybe people, yeah, a lot of people, I think that for me, actually, I had a lot of different avenues I was pursuing. I'd just gotten out of grad school in art theory. I could have gone into the museum world and as a curator, I could have been an art writer. I could have gone back to studio and been an art, you know, an artist full-time. Um, so deciding what to pursue sometimes is the first challenge. Um, for me, I was very lucky in that I fell in love with a problem that was right in front of me. I didn't, the idea came to me through customers expressing their pain. They, I was, I was hired as a researcher. I, my first job at an agency was at Goodby Silverstein and Partners. And I was hired to help, I was a freelancer, photo researcher to help on a sprint campaign. And the challenge was we want to create 300 ads in the next nine months. We're not going to shoot anything. It's all going to be internet content. And all of, a lot of it was very meme driven, meme oriented. They wanted like real internet, internet content, kind of early UGC, I guess you could say. And can you come in and help us find some stuff? And when I came in to help research, that was, I loved working with creatives. I loved sitting with them. And you, again, you just kind of follow, I was following that gut instinct of what did I really enjoy doing? Usually what you really enjoy doing is something you're also kind of good at doing. And you can start to become a bit of an expert in, in that if you're passionate about it. And if you see a gap, there was no one else doing. They would all come to me and ask, can you help me find this thing? We were, we were searching for three hours last night. I didn't find anything. Could you try it? So you, you build up, a, I built up a bit of an expertise around this thing so that I was the one people contacted when they had this particular problem. So, so, so it's, I think this is a really good learning moment. So you are the person kind of in charge of this. People come to you, you see the need, you identify this like huge opportunity. You start to see it in a different way, manifesting in a different way. And so was there a moment when you were at that job, you were like, I could start a company and do this differently? No doubt. The whole thing became, started to balloon out. It was like powers of 10. You know, I was like on my little picnic basket, picnic blanket, with my like little kind of freelance business. And then all of a sudden I saw departments needing this and it wasn't just creative. It was business affairs would then come to my desk and say, I heard the creatives really like these 10 things. How much are those going to cost? And do we have all the paperwork we need? And I was like, Oh my God, this is, I'm now at the center of this exchange that has to happen. I, I, I don't even have, I, I don't need to send business affairs into do it. I can do it. Just give me the paperwork and tell me the terms and I'll negotiate. I'm the one that found it. So I'm the one who most authentically can communicate to the creator why 
we want to use it, right? I'm, this is, fits perfectly into the story. The creative team is so excited about this. Like, how did you shoot it? These are not questions that a business affairs person was going to ask. It became this kind of interesting competitive advantage for, for me to be that go-between. Um, and then, so I started to see departments needing this and then production had, and then that was just Sprint. But then Chevy contacted me and said, hey, I heard what you're doing on Chevy. Can you come learn Sprint? Can you come over and take a look at what, what we're doing on Chevy? And then Amex did the same. I'm like, okay, so this is multiple accounts. And then I thought about those accounts. I thought about, okay, Sprint has got, could be working on these 300 ads, but Sprint's got all sorts of internal communications and other agency partners that they're working with. Like who's managing this particular weird niche thing for all of those campaigns. And then I just, but it was so inefficient. I mean, I, I'm only one person and I was merging spreadsheets and very brute web forms together that I'd created. And I had my own personal list of all the websites and creators I'd go after every time. I had developed my own shortcuts, but that's just me, one single person. So I think as the opportunity became larger and that, and that's just on the, on the, on the buy side, like that's just on the, professional storyteller side but then there's the internet that's happening swirling all around everything and then all of a sudden new platforms are launching and I'm just like overwhelmed with opportunity like who's going to make this scalable I, I can't service every single one of these customers but I know they're all out there so the idea sort of found me in a way right it's sort of I was in the space and I saw this pain and I saw the future pain I was like how oh, many these customers if somebody doesn't solve this problem if someone doesn't make this efficient and make the internet licensable, everyone's going to be just, we're not going to move forward as an industry. We're just going to kind of keep hiring single freelancers to like do impossible jobs and have to run around like their heads cut off. So I, I felt like I was, I needed to do this as a service to the future in a way. And I became infected with that. It was like, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I was thinking about it so much, but what I love about this journey for me is that it really started with the customer. It started with a real pain someone was feeling about something. They needed a thing. Yeah, it was a pain. It wasn't you just saying like, I've got an idea. Let me go sell people on the idea. It was, you have a problem and you might not understand the scale of the problem, but you have a problem and let me introduce you to a solution that I've created. Amazing. You know, as an entrepreneur myself, just hearing the story, like I get chills just because it's like, it's like a eureka moment, right? It's just like, uh, yes, I have an amazing idea. So, okay. So you have the idea, inspiration struck. Now what? You quit your job and how do you start a company like this? Like, how does that work? So, so the other piece to this, I said there were two pieces, right? So the first piece is you getting that sort of, where does that inspiration come from? And hopefully it's connected to some place that you're passionate about. Because if you're passionate, you're probably really good at it and it's probably doesn't feel like work. So that's, that's the first thing. Hopefully the idea is coming out of passion. The second piece is where do you start? So it, I had the big vision. I had that Eureka moment was like, Oh my God, this is massive. The internet's going to need this. My customers are going to need this, but you can't start there. You have to start from the very beginning. So it's, it can be a bit annoying as an entrepreneur, because you're like, oh, but I don't want to be, I want to be there. I want to be at that like end state as quickly as possible. So I would, I would emphasize that, that those sort of first steps are really, really important. Um, making sure that you kind of reality check a little bit. Okay. Well, if I want to get this big thing done, what, what are the first things I have to prove? You know, I struggled with that at the beginning. I downloaded a bunch of like business plans online and maybe it's just not the way that my brain works, but I had a really hard time getting that granular. And I think that 
we don't need to get that granular right away. Let's think more about the customer. What is the value to the customer that they need? Well, they were going to need curation. They definitely were going to need search. They needed help with searching. I knew that because I was providing that service. So can I train other people to do that? That was the first question. Can I train others? And so I hired a couple of freelancers and I started to, you know, hire people that I, you know, you know how it is in this industry. You hire people and sometimes you meet somebody and you're like, you are golden. Like I can do so much with you. And so I would, I'd meet these amazing curators, some of which are still at Catch and Release today. And I would teach them the trade of curating all the way down from like, here's how we do a creative kickoff call. These are the kinds of questions that you ask. This is how we listen. This is how we repeat back to a creative director what we think we heard. This is how we, this is how we deal with a brief. It's our golden egg. You can't drop it. And it's sacred. Like these are all the kind of principles that I taught them. And then it was, okay, can you now create, can you train the next batch of people? So so rising above all that, it's curation. So how do we make search and curation something? Because our clients are going to need it. Then it was licensing. Well, I, I'm not a licensor. I, I wasn't. I wasn't born. I wasn't raised in like as a BA person. I didn't know there were so many ins and outs of IP and licensing that I knew I was going to need a partner. So brought in somebody who had that experience, who could set up the contracts and set up all the things, and brought in a. Are you, you still know, at your job, or you quit your job at this point? Quit my job at that point. Quit your job because you you quit your job because you're going to start this company. My my contract at Goodby was ending, and I just instead of I could have kind of continued on, or you know, uh, you know, there was plenty of opportunity at Goodby, but I was like, you know, I think I want to do this, and so I went I went down to up and down Market Street in San Francisco with I knew that I had one thing in my pocket that was going to be really important, which is that I had just finished working at Goodby, so because that was at least people knew who that, what that was. When I went into a new agency, the way I'd get in, I'd say, hey, I work at Goodby. I'm thinking about, I did this like right before I left. So I could say that I work, not worked. I work at Goodby. I'm thinking about my next thing. I'd love to share with you a couple of ideas. Would you be open to a meeting? And then, and then I'd go in. I took as many meetings as I could get with up and down, up and down Market Street and California Street with every agency and production company I could. Venables, three, McCann, Butcher Shop. And who was the first company that signed with you? Uh, I think it was Venables, Venables Bell and Partners. Amazing. And so that gave you the validation you needed to. It did. And we, and the network. So, so these were kind of started like as a freelancer with a couple of people. It was just kind of, so it was very manually done at that point. You didn't have the technology, right? No, not at all. I, well, I went down to Kinko's and I printed business cards and I named, I named the company and I, I printed business cards and I went into these places. So I went into Venables and I said, this, at the time, it was Visual Catch. Visual Catch was the first iteration of Catch and Plates. For Visual Catch, we are Visual Catch. We are a company that finds and licenses content. My team is, you know, working right now, but I'm here talking to you about what you need. We are so excited. So you do, you kind of like fake it till you make it a little bit. There was no we, it was just me. But you, you again, you're, you're always keeping that big vision in mind. Like, that's where we want to go. So what's the what's the best way to take advantage of this tiny opportunity we have and make it point to that big one. Um, and so, but always thinking back, you know, the reason I think business plans didn't work either is business plans are so much about the business you're building. What about the customer? It does, go through an exercise where you really decide on the value you're providing to them. Is everything should be working backwards from that. Then you understand, all right, well, if I need curation, then I need this. And if I need licensing, I need that. Oh, I'm going to need E&O insurance because we need to indemnify our clients against potential claims with this content. Okay, let's go set that up. 
So you, it's incremental, but you're, you're always thinking about where you're always pointing toward that. So at some point you, you know, you got a client, you have your researchers. Did you have to like pull in lawyers, freelance and kind of piece it together? So it felt like a thing. And then as it started to come together, it started to just and all the while, um, I learned so much with hiring that first um, batch of freelancers because I was learning about the process and how then I started thinking about efficiency. Then I started thinking about, well, what would we automate in this process if we could? Um, some things are uniquely human. Um, curation is a, can be a very human act. Um, evaluating if a piece of content feels right for a story, very human. But data entry around whether or not a piece of content is cleared and whether or not a creator has responded to an email and said yes or no, or wants to price negotiate, like that all automated. So what I ended up doing in parallel, while I was in the early stages of building this business was building a roadmap. What is a, what would a product look like? What would it do? What does it need to solve? And then a few years in bootstrapping, because we were, we weren't venture funded at that time. Um, I, developed enough of a technical vision that I could start talking to engineers and start talking to other technical leaders that I was meeting along the way. Um, people who had done this before um, in Silicon Valley and getting their feedback on it. And then Catch and Release was born once the product was ready to start getting built. Got it. And so you raised $14 million in a series A funding round. So mm-hmm. first of all, amazing. Um, secondly, was the technology built after that was, um, raised or before, or a combination? Before. So we, we were bootstrapped for about three years before we raised any outside money. So we, you know, customers paid us to do projects and we used the proceeds to invest in the tech. Um, we ended up building a, uh, prototype of our product between now and then that was, you know, pretty clunky. Um, if you're not embarrassed by your first product then you're not releasing fast enough. You're not like putting it out in the world fast enough because the most important thing to get is user testing, user data. Put it out, see how customers use it, make tweaks based on that behavior versus what you think needs to happen. Um, so prototype one went out. We we worked off of that for a couple of years, um, tweaking it, making improvements to it. And then when we raised our series A, we gutted the whole thing and rebuilt. And that's where we are now. We've just launched. We're actually about to launch. By the time this episode airs, we will have just launched the new version of our product. Amazing. How was the uh, fundraising part? Was that something that you kind of led yourself? And what did you have to learn how to do that? How did you know who to call? How does that work? And totally had to learn it all. Didn't know anybody. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody recently about this. Um, I'm doing an article on... um, first time fundraising for founders. Uh, Cause there's so much I didn't know. Um, a lot of it does come down to network, but it, it's not, network's not enough. You also have to understand the psychology of investors. It's a little bit like, um, like in advertising, you really have to understand your audience. And the audience, the investor audience is a very specific kind of audience. So my first couple pitches to investors, I was pitching to them like a customer or like, a, like an artist, like they would just get it, you know, like you and I are like, yeah, of course we need that. Investors are like, how does it scale? What's the business model? Um, well, I make money. <laughs> metrics. How does this become something that's valued at a million dollars today? And how does it become uh, something that's valued at a billion dollars? 
I'm asking myself questions like, what, is value, what does value mean? What does that mean? How does that work? So I didn't know any of this. So I, I, I had to be curious about it and I had to learn and I had to put myself out there and meet a bunch of people. One of the best groups of people to meet if you've never fundraised before are other CEOs or founders that have just finished fundraising. That's where you're going to get the best advice. And I didn't know any, any other company leaders at the time, but I met them. When I did meet them, I'd sit down with them and pick their brain and they'd say, oh yeah, I, all these amateur mistakes. Like I made those at the beginning too. Here's what I do now. Here's how my emails would sound. Here's the kind of investors you want to reach out to. Here's the kind of questions you should ask. Here's how you should answer their questions. Aww. So you got yeah, a you lot know. of like kind of peer-to-peer mentorship. Big time, Amazing. big time. And it's people like, were gracious with giving you the information and the, the guidance. So gracious. I love that. So, so nice. gracious. I've never had anybody turn down a, a conversation and I will never turn down a conversation. Oh, that's amazing. People have been incredibly generous with their, with their time. It's amazing. And knowledge. As an entrepreneur, like I'm so inspired by you just like listening to your story. First of all, there's so many similarities in your story and mine, but. I know. Well, we, I really have enjoyed it. All right. So moving on, I understand that you met an improv coach named Liz Allen. And saw that her coach, you you saw that her coaching would revolutionize how you work. Um, and that sounds really unexpected. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about this because I love when people are inspired in, you know, unique ways. Well, improv is an awesome, very unique. Um, and I've, I, again, as many things in my career, you can point back to these sort of unexpected moments that you didn't know were going to turn into something. And then they all of a sudden become the thing. Um, improv is kind of similar to that. So I actually owe my, uh, my working with Liz and my love of, of improv to Mike Birbiglia, who's a well-known comedian and artist. Um, he presented to us at one of our first virtual summits. So in 2020, when the world was shut down, we had him come and speak to our all hands summit or kickoff. And it was awesome. He did such a great job. And it was a very interactive session. He did some stand-up and he did some of his stuff, but he also did a lot of inviting the company in and asking questions. And he and I did a Q&A session for about 25 minutes or so. And um, we had a blast. He called me afterwards and said, hey, I really enjoyed that. And you know, I'd love to introduce you to somebody. She's my improv coach. She, he worked with her on his film, Don't Think Twice, which is a film about an improv ensemble, and she was the coach that got this team of actors to behave like an improv team on set, on camera. So she was behind the scenes, but an important part of how that how they developed glue for the scenes that they were in together. Um, so she and I scheduled a call and just totally hit it off. Um, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the ambitions around what I wanted to do with the company, and also the things that were important to me about leadership and my philosophy around growing a company and building a culture really resonated with her and her descriptions about what improv brings to teams on a cultural level really resonated with me. Um, and what we learned was there's no real difference between the two. You take the stage out or the company out and you're dealing with these principles of trust, vulnerability, spontaneous ideation, innovation, collaboration, and no ego and no politics. Wow. Can I steal I, this idea for my team? Absolutely. Oh, I hope you do that. I'm actually, so another one I'm writing, <laughs> I'm writing a lot now, which is really exciting, but um, 
we just uh, just finalized a piece on why I brought improv into a startup setting. Oh my gosh, so great! I really want to dig in more on this. Um, it's so when you when you look at those principles and you take out the like the art of improv and the the company that you're building, it's like, well, these are it's what else is there? This is this is what we're in the business of doing. Whether you're coming at it from the improv side or the startup side, so. But this became kind of an experiment. She'd worked with corporations before, but mostly in the, in the case of like doing a workshop here and there, certainly not with like enthusiastic CEO buy-in and not at the earliest formation stages of a company and not on a regular basis. We've been doing it twice a month for two years. Um, so we together, Liz and I, have been checking in between sessions and saying, all right, what did you learn? We're like nerding out on it. She's like, oh my God, from an improviser's perspective, this was just absolutely fascinating. And my theory about, you know, this type of collaboration really came forward in this particular scene. Like I couldn't believe it because I know that there was tension here and then we really worked it out in 45 minutes. And then I'd say like, wow, well, you know, I, some incredible ideas came out of this, this workshop, but then we applied two meetings later to a project that we're trying to work on or a product we're trying to launch or whatever it might be. So We've been just, it's been a, a big experiment, um, but it's paying off. It's really, it's really working. And um, it's, and it's also really fun. I mean, it's also like, doesn't feel like work at all. It's, awesome. How big is your team right now? The whole company, we're about 65 people. Um, the leadership team is eight, including me. Yeah. And that's engineering, product, finance, sales, a chief of staff who's kind of like the all seeing, all seeing eye um operations and um people so a lot of different kinds of people you know when you think about an improv team like that's a lot of different kinds of personalities different priorities different perspectives um all democratized onto a single your company your company is similar in size to me i'm just curious kind of ceo to ceo like what's your what's the hardest part um, of all the departments for you? Is it the HR, the finance? Like what's the part that doesn't come the easiest, that's the most challenging for you that you're really like determined to, to really master? Hmm, that's such a great question. Um, I would say, I'd probably say finance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd probably say finance or engineering. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by both, they're very different. Mm-hmm. Finance, I, I say, because it's it's really having not started this company as a, as a entrepreneur that knew I wanted a CEO you know, path and like was going to come in through right. revenue or come in through operations. Like I came in through the creative side, to the customer side. So I'd say that's my that's the area that I'd like to learn, become more fluent in. It's a language, really. Um, so is so is engineering. Um, and with engineering, what finds what I find fascinating about it is it's a highly creative thing but it's a language or a medium I've never worked in. And it's very process. It's like a, it's very process oriented and also anti-process. It's an interesting world. Engineering is an interesting world that I'd like to learn more about. Okay. So another uh, snag that you talked about that I want to talk, another snag that you talked about that I want to touch on is you said that you learned the difference between being a founder and a leader the hard way. Tell us about that. Yeah, there there is a moment. Uh, there was a moment, at least for me, where there an inflection point where I realized that being a founder wasn't enough. That I actually had to be a leader. I had to be a CEO. Um, 
and you don't, that's not obvious at the beginning, especially because you're growing something, you know, at the beginning, you're growing it like a person at a time. So when you're only 10 people or 15 people, and maybe you had a similar experience having started your own agency, I, I felt sort of embarrassed to put CEO on my email signature. I was kind of like, well, hey, no, I don't need to like just say it, you know? Imposter syndrome, yes. But kind of imposter syndrome. And also just like, also the fact that you're, it's a small operation and everybody kind of knows what everybody else is working on and doing. And, you know, it, it even seems silly to do things like let's set values for ourselves. Let's, let's like put it on paper. Like it feels a little sort of overly over-engineered for an early stage company and the titles felt that way as well. So how important though, all these details, because you're, you're laying the foundation and you know, it's, it's interesting is I've had my company for 25 years and for 24 years, for 24 years, I was the, um, you know, the executive creative director. And it wasn't until um, the pandemic when I bought my business partner out that I became the CEO, I had to like relearn all these things. And so everything you're talking about is exactly what I experienced, you know, like we had to start setting values and I had to start, you know, I was always very, I was always a founder and an owner, and I was always very reactive to how my business ran, but becoming a CEO is about, you know, doing it differently and leading versus being reactive to it, which to me was the biggest difference. There were moments in the early stages of building the company when we would hit a big challenge or a big snag as a company where I needed to stand up and lead these people. And which meant I had to kind of just connect myself a little bit from them. I wasn't just the, I wasn't their buddy and their friend and their like coworker. I had to, I had to sort of say, okay, oh, these are, we're going to make some tough decisions now. And I'm the one that needs to make them. And I remember that just being a kind of, I realized it one day, it was just one day I was like, oh God, I have to, somebody has to make this tough decision and it's me. And, and I also then need to communicate that decision and I need to follow through with that decision. And I need to get other people to help me follow through with that decision. Okay. Wow. This is now this is a really hard job and I now have to take this really seriously. <laughs> I have to take the leadership. It's not just about the product that we're building. It's the way that we, the way that I can get people to work together is going to be a defining part of my success here. So what is your leadership style? I would say I am someone who, um, I, I tend to power down. I tend to like leading through letting others find answers versus um sort of very top-down sort of command and control leadership style i'm i'm a little bit more open to collaboration than that um but i am very i am very specific on the mission and the vision and where we want to go so i can be very sort of um clear and direct especially when it comes to what it is we're doing and why um, i'm very interested in strategy i really understand the customer like really, really well. So I like to, I like to share that with people as much as possible. Um, but I would say I'm a, I'm very diplomatic almost to a fault. Sometimes I think I tend sometimes to let things go to consensus more often than not, which sometimes is really good, but it's not always what's needed. Sometimes things need consensus. Sometimes things need coordination. Sometimes things just need information. And as leaders, I think we have to learn the spectrum of that and decide when to use our power and when to relinquish our power according to the situation. Um, I can't, I can't get over how similar you and I are. <laughs> like literally, you answer everything the way I would answer it. Like, well, you should, I should have you on my future podcast. I mean, wow. I mean, you're making me smile so big just because there's just a lot, a lot of, a lot of shared values. Really nice to hear. 
Awesome. Well, we are, you know, we're, we're kind of coming towards the end. So, um, the last part of this that we do are some rapid fire questions. Um, so just gonna, you know, quickly ask you a question just in a sentence, you know, first thing that comes to mind and, um, then we'll wrap it up. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. All right. Fantastic. So professionally, what keeps you up at night? Building something that customers find really good value in. What is one of the biggest challenges um, facing women CEOs today? One of the biggest challenges facing women CEOs today, I think, is in commanding authentic, an authentic voice. I think women are pulled in a lot of different directions based on the social pressure around them that I think makes it difficult for us to find our authentic leadership voice. If you were to give your younger self one just great pointer that, you know, it's just like so obvious, what would it be? It would be never lose sight of your connection to the vision, meaning don't delegate too soon in the building of the company. You have to delegate, but don't delegate the really important pieces that only you can really define. What is your biggest strength? I connect people. Biggest weakness? I'm not a great planner. If you could add one skill set to your repertoire, just that you wish you could do really, really well, what would it be? I'd speak like four more languages. So what's, what's next for Catch and Release? We're going to become the licensing layer of the internet. And then lastly, what does success mean to you? That hundreds of thousands of people are, love the product and service we provide and use it every day. And that my team finds personal fulfillment in making that happen. Awesome. Well, I think you have answered all of my questions. And I, again, am so inspired by you. I'm so excited for people to listen to this. I think you have so many great insights and takeaways And I just appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this.